Presently, through the flying hour. Welcome to this, the sixth episode of Gargsville. Today we're going to feature Mr. Billy O'Connor, who I had the pleasure of going to school with when I was in my 40s and he was in his 60s at the University of Florida. He is a former Bronx bookie, fire department lieutenant in New York City, Vietnam vet, who served his time in Nam, and he has served his time on the altar of sex, drugs, and gambling. He is currently an author of the book Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, which we will talk about, and also a stand-up comedian who lives currently in Phoenix, Arizona, and hits the clubs in L.A., Phoenix, Las Vegas, and the West Coast. His self-published book, Confessions of a Bronx Bookie, can be bought on Amazon or at bronxbilly.com. It is endorsed by little Stevie Van Zant, guitarist of the Bruce Springsteen E Street Band, and the actor who played Silvio in The Sopranos. About this book, Mr. Ellis Amburn, who is the author, excuse me, who is the editor of the one and only Jack Kerouac, wrote, Raw, fresh, and ballsy. Eminently readable. Comedian Amy Donahue wrote, I read the Evan-loving shit out of this book. In the Trillium Writers Guild wrote, Anyone who has ever raised a glass, bent a knee, or just plain lost their way should read this book. Now one little thing before we have Billy on is he does not mince words. He's a very honest and straightforward fellow. One of his major comedic influences, George Carlin, was known to use an expletive or two now and then. I know Billy to use more like an an expletive or three now and then. So, if you're one of the faint at heart, I advise that, well actually I'm not going to advise you to not listen to this because you'll be better for it if you did, even if you are a faint at heart, a goody two shoes, a strict uh, believer in not not using any swear, cuss, or words or expletives. I still think you should listen because this guy knows what he's talking about. Not that it's the business of Gargsville to advocate any type of lifestyle. Lifestyle. My philosophy is to each his or her own 
Billy will be the first to tell you that a life anywhere in the realm of excess, especially when it comes to things like alcohol and drugs, is not a very good idea. And if there's excess in gambling, you know, somebody might come and take your furniture away. However, at the same time, I find there's something about exciting people and compulsiveness or being mad, in a sense, that go hand in hand. And you kind of have to really take the good with the bad when it comes to, the, to that. It is indeed for me, when it comes to Billy O'Connor, as Jack Kerouac wrote in his famous novel, On the Road. The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. And in the middle, you see the blue center light pop and everybody goes, ah. Or, aww. <laughs> so, embrace yourself. Embrace yourself. Because here comes the one and only Mr. Billy O'Connor. Okay. So, today we have, right, cool. Billy, we have Billy O'Connor on. He's the author of Confessions of a Bronx Bookie. When did this come out, Billy? When did the book come out? It came out about uh, 11 months ago, 12 months ago. And how was well, it received? Uh, yeah, for a while, well, I, I self-published, so uh, that's always a trial, because what happens is after writing, you have to learn a whole new skill, and that is how to promote the book, and uh, social media is time-consuming. So, uh, uh, But, of course, if the book hits, you reap larger rewards. So uh, I decided to do that. I've sold about 3,000 copies, which is pretty good for an unknown, uh, uh -huh. and it's a lot of critical acclaim. Every review on Amazon, all 65 reviews are five stars. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, Stephen Van Zandt from the E Street Band uh, has been pushing it for me and uh, from The Sopranos. And uh, he read it and thought it made a good basis for, for an HBO series. Now, whether or not that happens, that's only conjecture. Who knows? But, uh, but Van Zandt said the dialogue was so sharp you could shave with it. So that was a nice <laughs> quote. <laughs> I think it's on the back of the next book I'm working on now called The Mick. But it's been out about 11 months. It's doing well. It's on BronxBilly.com. Uh, please, have your listeners uh, go to Amazon and uh, read the reviews. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, H. Fraley from Kiss, who is in full disclosure, he grew up in the, my neighborhood. Uh-huh. Uh, and he said it was the lap dance he never wanted to see in. So that was a nice quote from, from Ace. Whether or not he read it or not, I don't know if it's Ace, you know, but... Uh, he could have had the glue bag. Who knew? But, uh, <laughs> but well, uh, I will. I, 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 I know Ace from, from when we were kids. Awesome. I have read uh, up to page 140. I love the book. I'm definitely going to finish reading it. I'm just, uh, I'm kind of lazy. Are, with you, reading are you in these Vietnam days. yet? Are you in Vietnam yet? Yeah, I went in. I, well, I'm definitely into the Far East. You know, you're getting some massages okay. and stuff. And, oh, uh, oh, yeah, hitting the whorehouses <laughs> in Bangkok, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which is always a good point to me. You know, when, when you were in journalism school with me, they told us about the lead, and I always said, you know, if you tell me, I guess the beginning of the story, 
So I walked into this house. So drab, it's mundane. But if you say I walked into a whorehouse in Bangkok, somebody's going to read that next sentence. <laughs> hey, you damn right. Specificity. And what's interesting, you know, sex, drugs, gambling, and the mob. So the book is about, uh, I don't think there's anything in that book that wouldn't interest you, and I'm, uh, and you'll fly through it after this. Now, the matter of fact, it, everybody tells me it's quick, you know, to me. I, I worked hard on the editing, and uh, I seem to be holding myself to even higher standard now. No, I just mention I'm writing in third person. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah, because I need a, uh, it's going to be a lot about the screwballs in the South Bronx and that I worked with for 20 years in the firehouse. And it's a love story that ends on 9-11, but I want my readers to get involved with the other characters, so I need that omnipotent viewpoint. You know what I mean? I have to write this in third person because I can't have my protagonist make Mullen be there all the time, you know? Uh-huh. I don't want to tell, I don't want to tell a story through his eyes. I want to tell it you know, from the omnipotent narrator. So one one thing I should tell you one thing one thing that I loved about the book so far is about you growing up in the Bronx. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'm proud that you you asked me about that because I'm prouder of that chapter than I am anything else. Uh, that was a very difficult chapter because a lot of cost cost a lot of copies I sold because it's confessions of a Bronx bookie with bought by guys in the Bronx and they told me I nailed it you know growing up and uh, the brotherhood you know when I grew up we didn't go in and out of our houses we went up and down like you know we lived in tenements and the beauty of the tenements I mean for all this squalor I lived in a five story walk up was uh, when you came downstairs there was 40 30 40 kids your age to play with you didn't have to go anywhere you didn't need a car it wasn't the suburbs you were right there in the streets, and it was 30, 40 kids, like Bruce Springsteen things, you know? When I'm out on the streets, I walk the way I want to walk. I talk the way I want to walk. You had an identity when you were on the streets, you know what I mean? You, you, you were somebody, whereas when you were upstairs with your parents, you were just their, their child, you know? So it was the streets where we really learned everything. I learned more from there than I ever learned from any university. And, and the camaraderie was almost the same kind of camaraderie you get in the fire department, you know? It was... Uh, or that you would get if you're in combat, which I was in Vietnam. It's, uh, there's, 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 uh, camaraderie that never goes away. Like, you know, if a guy was called Spinky, Gabo, and he could be a CEO of a corporation, it wouldn't make any difference. He'd still be Spinky today, or Gabo. I mean, that's just the way it is. It doesn't, you know, it's, it doesn't matter where you, what you achieve. You come from the neighborhood. Like, hey, Stace is from the neighborhood. I break his balls every time I see him. I get freaking blue freak, you know, like, uh, it's fairly, uh, I was on my way to Vietnam in a little anecdote. I was uh, 18, and I, I was hungover, I tell because I think I drank about three quarts of beer the night before, because I was going to Vietnam, uh-huh. and I was going to Vietnam. And I was walking up the street in Whitehall, to, to take the train down to Whitehall Street, and I looked over on a stoop in my neighborhood, one of the tenement stoops, and there was a kid at 5 o'clock in the morning with long hair, sniffing glue out of a paper bag. His name was Paul Freely, and I said, look at Paul, Paul, man, he ain't going nowhere, you know what I mean? Of course, watch this, watch this blue. <laughs> at least I got a future. It was, my future was a year later, I'm Paul to Rice Bodies, and Paul Freely's ace Freely, the lead guitarist, the kids, you know? That's my, uh, don't ever do anything I tell you to do. You're listening to me, I, if I go to cemetery, people would stop dying. I have no, no foresight whatsoever, no acting. But anyway, yeah, so growing up there was like, it was a blessing, because you went downstairs with 30 or 40 kids, and of course, 
you're a child, but you also learned how to deal with other people and you were always interacting. And those skills were enormously beneficial throughout my whole life. You know, the, 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 the ability to walk into any room and not feel out of place. It's a wonderful, uh, whether it's true or not, it doesn't make any difference. It's a wonderful frame of mind to have where you never feel like you're, uh, out of your, out of your range. You know what I mean? Sure. Never intimidated. In other words, you know, it's because because of growing up in that environment. I think anyway. I, I have a friend. I have a friend who's probably about seventy now, and he grew up in Brooklyn. And I mm-hmm. guess his father, his father happened to be. Um, I don't know. I don't think he was an alcoholic, but he had a real um, anger streak. And he used to, you know, he used to kind of beat the, the kids sometimes, but he loved this kid. Yeah. And uh, when he's uh, and my friend told me when he was five, if they would leave the house, leave him alone in the house, they they would they would put a, a an unloaded gun under his pillow to make him feel like he was protected. Wow! <laughs> so God only knows what he saw in his youth. He could have been a career, or God knows where, you know. I think his, his father was a bit involved in the mob. Well, then, then there's that, too, of course. <laughs> Which never lets you sleep soundly, I guess. But I the those stories guys. he tells I about... I don't want to do Sam's and these guys. Matter of fact, we'll be getting into those chapters now when uh, Joe Pesci gets discovered and uh, when De Niro discovers Joe Pesci in the bar and, uh, and uh, my dealings with the mob are coming up now when I became a bookmaker if I came back from mom. That's so did you, did you, have, you have dealings with Joe Pesci? Yeah, I knew Joe. Uh-huh. I was from uh, lived about six blocks away. He was a runner for a bookmaker. Uh, okay. The bookmaker I used to deal with. A runner is a guy who goes out and picks up money for the bookmaker, you know, and he gets twenty five percent of the wins and losses. But okay. uh, Pesci, Pesci actually lived in a tenement above a, a restaurant on Arthur Avenue, which is an Italian enclave, the Bronx, and uh, he worked for this guy Joe. I won't mention his last name. He was the boss of bosses. So he, every bookmaker went out there, every, every numbers runner, every loan shark had to kick back to Big Joe. Well, Joe Pesci worked for Big Joe. He was a wannabe gangster. He wasn't even a, a wise guy. He was just a wannabe. What he used to do, actually, was Joe owned an uh, Italian restaurant called Michael's in Buffett, is where Ted Pesci lived with his kids and his wife. And okay. he used to play guitar. He used to play guitar and walk around and serenade the diner. Uh, when they were eating... So one night, he was in there, and uh, of course, he was also a runner for the book. Like, I used to meet him every day, and I think, I don't think Joe would remember me, but I certainly remember him. Uh, and uh, he's in there one night, my buddy Vinny was there, and Vinny was my tie to this whole crew. And uh, it was a, he was eating his spaghetti, where he was trying to eat before he started serenading the people. And uh, there's a phone, the phone rings, and Pesci gets up, Joe is for you, and he picks up the phone. And he says, what are you, some kind of a wise-ass motherfucker? He says, what are you, some kind of a cocksucker? He says, how about up in your mother's cunt? How about that? So he explains the phone that, right? So he's pissed right. off. He sits down. He's eating the spaghetti. And Joe says, what? What the hell was that all about? Joe, what, what was that all about? He says, some asshole just called me up. He told me he's Robert De Niro and he wants to put me in a movie. He's like, I ain't got enough <laughs> fucking problems. He says, I'm trying to make a couple of bucks. And this asshole's going to break my balls. You put him up to this? You guys put him up to this shit? So the phone rings again, and the waiter says, Joe, it's for you again. He goes, what? Are you some kind of a, what do you fuck? If you were here, I'd rip your fucking head off, stick it up your ass, you motherfucker. He says, up in your mother's cunt, and he stands the phone down again. <laughs> About 30 minutes later, 
De Niro walks into the fucking restaurant and goes, look, I, I, I'm Bobby De Niro. I don't know who you think I was, but it was misunderstanding. He says, I saw you in a Danny Aiello movie. And he says, uh, I think, you know, I'd like to put you in a bit part in my movie I'm making right here in the neighborhood, Raging Bull, about Jake LaMotta. <laughs> because that's where LaMotta trained was in Mount Carmel Gym, which was right on Arthur Avenue. And, uh, of course, now it's a different story. Hey, Joe, 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 Robert De Niro, sit down, you got to eat, have some vino, blah, blah, Joe takes over, ignores Joe Pesci. And now they go up to this place called Hoops, which was a hot nightclub up in New Rochelle. It was a disco area, so there was like three big bars in the middle. And they all go out, have a couple of pops, and they're sitting at the bar, and De Niro sees a blonde dancing in the middle of the dance floor. And he says, tell that girl I want to buy her a drink. He says, she looks exactly like Vicky Lamana. And De Niro's a stickler for realism. So what happened? 17-year-old Kathleen, Mor Kathleen Moriarty, 17 years old, got a big break, and she got to play uh, Vicky Lamana and uh, Raging Bull. Wow. That's the story. That's how it happened. Wow. I actually the knew, book. I know the, I still know the niece of Jake Lamana. Is Jake Lamana still alive? I doubt it. I mean, he never took care of himself. He was a, you know, raging alcoholic. I, I think he was right. back in the 70s, you know? I don't know. I, I doubt know, it. I, 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 it's a miracle when I'm alive. Never mind Lamont. Yeah. Lamont had a lot tougher life to go with than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's talk about what was the purpose of this book besides telling a lot of really far-out, engaging stories. Well, you know what? I got to say, it was cathartic in a way. I mean, you know, looking back at my youth and thinking about things that was coming across, why couldn't I remember this? Why couldn't I remember this? It was like a psychiatrist's wet dream, you know what I'm saying? Holy shit, I don't remember my old man's funeral, you know? But the message ultimately is that you can't beat the house by gambling. I mean, it's absolutely impossible to beat sports betting, and I, I prove it in the book. I show it how, it's, how it works. I uh -huh. get back, I show you the back background of what goes on in the bookie's office. Uh, of course, the sex, the drugs, the alcoholism, that was all part of my life. And uh, I sobered up about five years after 9-11. I was at 9-11, and uh, about five years later, I sobered up. I was down the Keys getting drunk. And that's when I met you. I went to the University of Florida. I earned a journalism degree. And, uh, found out that, you know, I had stories. I knew I had stories to tell. I wanted to learn how to tell them because I'm Irishman. And I said, well, let me learn how to write. So, uh... <laughs> And you I were did. born in Ireland, correct? Correct. I was born in County Cork, Island. I came here about 1950 by boat to Ellis Island. And uh, I started writing at 63, I guess, or 62. So by God, people started reading it. And uh, I said, wow, this is something I can do into my age if I stay alive. So it was, it was, a, it was a, an amazing epiphany for me. So I, my, but the book is also about how to find the right path. You know, like, And it's not one of these God books or nothing like that. It's like it's just how this guy got sober, why he got sober, and, and how it's never too late. You know what I mean? Everything you ever want is on the other side of fear. I'm not drinking now almost 10, 11 years, and I got to tell you, I'm having more fun now than I ever had in my life, which I didn't dream possible, because all my joy was centered around alcohol. You know, I was a big-time alcoholic, you know? And so, it's genetic. I mean, there's, my there's, family's... I see. I've yeah, looked, my family, I mean, I mean alcohol... Alcohol does a run of my family gallops, you know? Everybody <laughs> in my family death from cirrhosis. Everybody. I've already outlived everybody in my family. So it's, it's, it's been a joy. And, and the book is, it's redemption. It's about how this guy found his way back and how alcohol kills even as it enlivens. You know, it's a wonderful drug, but it's, it's one of the most insidious drugs out there. Most addictive, so one of the most addictive. 
How would you say how would you say that excessive sex, gambling, and alcohol are all kind of interrelated? Well, if you have a compulsive personality, whether it be drugs, gambling, alcohol, sex, you're gonna jump right in. You know what I mean? You, there's no such thing as right. caution when you when you have a compulsive personality. You know, you but the problem with all of those compulsions is that regardless of which one you're mixed up in, they're all linked in a way because they narrow your world. You know, like, you're not going to meet a heroin addict at the Museum of Modern Art. You know what I mean? <laughs> it narrows his world. He's only going to hang out with heroin addicts. Drunks only hang out with drunks. Anybody else bored them. Gamblers uh-huh. only hang out with gamblers because if they're not gambling, everything else you're talking about bores them. It's a compulsion. It's a, you know, it's a, it's an obsession. Uh, if you're doing it correctly, it was the same thing with alcohol with me. I mean, it wasn't a, we almost became a vocation. You know, I mean, I, 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 my whole life was centered around saloons. I owned them. I owned a couple of bars. I talked about how to open a bar they successfully in the book. Give them a quick uh, how to open a bar 101 and how to make it work and a lot of tips. And uh, I think the book is funny. I think it reads funny. Uh, but there's certainly a lot of gravitas in there as well, you know. So I, I think it has a good mixture, I think. And listen, I'm very proud of it. I, uh, for my first effort, I'm extremely proud of it. I think it's going to continue to do well because... Uh, just a question of getting that out there, you know. And uh, now it came second yeah. place in a, in a contest for new authors. Is that correct? Yes, yes, I won a contest. But uh, in Miami, there was a, a book contest for a readers' review, and uh, I won second place in urban fiction out of like uh, I guess it was forty thousand entry, entries. But in my particular category, it was about four thousand entries, so I came in second. But wow. uh, the fact that Van Zandt is pushing it is great news, and uh, I just did a. The radio broadcast yesterday on I'm radio a big free fan of by the way. Yes, I am too. I'm a big fan of Anzan because oh, for many reasons, he's a, <laughs> Yeah, yesterday I was on uh, on uh, a radio show in New York with Malachi McCourt, uh, another author, famed author, and Irish specimen in the Irish community in New York. And uh, some Saturday I'll be on a radio free errand, which goes out to all of Ireland, so that's cool. And uh, they're going to interview me and. Uh, uh, their listeners are 300,000, so, you know, I'd like to see something happen from that, but you never know, but I mean, uh, uh, I'm proud of it. It's good, I think it's a good book, and whether nothing happens out of it, nothing happens, no problem, I'm going to write another one, and if nothing happens, then I'll write another one, if nothing happens, then I'll, I'll kick the door in the fourth, but one way or another, I'm, having, I'm doing what I got to do, I got to write, I got to tell the story. I think those five years of journalism school between the ages of 60 and 65, not to tell, not to finish up now. I want to write these stories. I got stories to tell, you know. About well, my life. And, uh, let me ask you uh, this. You know, when you read the book, you see the days where you, you know, you, you were into the gambling and the, and the sex and the drugs and, and the whole thing. And it certainly, it certainly seems like fun to me. Um, it was. But, <laughs> it, so you're not denying that, but what you're saying no. is somehow you're enjoying life more than you ever have. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, I am. I am. And, and, and uh-huh. It's insane, but I am. But I mean, look, ducks, you've got a couple of pops in your day. Let's face it. Young drunk. When you're young and you're drunk, it's fun. You know, you're a young drunk. You're a lot of fun. You're out. You're meeting girls. When you're old and you're drunk, you're just a pain in the ass. <laughs> old drunks are just a pain in the ass. And if I didn't stop, I wouldn't be alive. I mean, I feel good. I'm uh-huh. 68. The plumbing still works. I'm, I'm going out with a chick in my way. She's 21 years younger than me. She's uh, an acrobat. I mean, you know, like, uh, 
I'm having a lot of fun. I mean, uh, she's an acrobat. Comedy, she's an acrobat. She's an aerialist. Yeah, she's got a body like a 23 year old. She's got an ass like a fucking walnut. Uh, so she's 47. I'm 68. She's fucking great. I see her every two weeks. We scratch the itch. She goes back to LA. It's great. She comes in. She beats me up. I beat her up. She leaves. I rest, and I go back to my writing and my stand up. I mean, I'm doing stand up comedy out in LA and, and uh, Nevada and Vegas and. Uh, here in Arizona, I'm writing my second book. My life is charmed. I'm like, nothing hurts. I'm vertical. I mean, shit, I was in 9-11, man. I get calls all the time. Pray for this guy. He's not doing well. He's got bone cancer, lung cancer, eye cancer. Fuck wow. that, man. I'd rather go out and get in a fucking car and everything. I'd get in a blowjob from an acrobat, a 47-year-old acrobat. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm going to go. I'm going to go with a smile on my face. And that's what I want on my episode. I don't want... That Billy O'Connor died in 9-11. Billy O'Connor died in can't Well, fuck that. Give me Billy O'Connor. And a massive commentary. We're getting blown by a bisexual fruit player on fucking ecstasy. That's it. That's the way I want to go out. I mean, I do the drugs. I do drugs with her. I'll do mushrooms and ecstasy. We'll have sex. And uh, it's great. I mean, but, uh, and some weed. Sex, sex is a form of drugs. I think. Okay. Yes. Uh, when you do well, that well, other well. shit, when you do mushrooms or something, when it's like making you four years old again on a roller coaster, you know what I mean? <laughs> I've been on a roller coaster over three or four thousand with two or three different, two thousand different kinds of roller coasters, you know what I mean? So for me, I do mushrooms, it makes me like it's my first time out. It's a lot of fun. But I but don't do you drink. Make, I mean, that's do you my make sure they're only but organic I, mushrooms? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I only do them every two weeks or so when I see her. I just do them, you know, like for the night. And then we stay together for the weekend. So I mean, it's not like they're trying to dick it. Not to me. I mean, so it, it, it enhances the experience, though. Without a doubt. Without, Without a doubt. doubt. Well, yeah. So I'm having a great time. I mean, I, I'm not advocating going out and doing drugs, but I mean, you know, you can have a good time without drugs and alcohol. But uh, why take the chance? <laughs> well, you know, well, alcohol probably kills. Kills more people. Yes, than and alcohol is. I, I, if you put every drug known to man on the table and put a half a glass of beer next to it, that would be my most dangerous drug. If I took a half a glass of beer, I'm a dead man. I'll never be able to stop drinking again. Uh-huh. Well, I've been smoking weed since I was 16, and I'm 68 now. So that's, uh-huh. you know, I mean, that's, I mean, I can walk away from that any time and do. And, and and the same thing with this mushrooms or something. They're organic. I, I try them just because she likes them, and why not? At this stage of the game, I almost eat arsenic if I can get laid. So, <laughs> 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 but I'm not advocating that. But so the book is about sobriety, but it's about my own kind of sobriety. I don't, I'm not an AA guy. I'm a, I'm a common sense guy. If I was still drinking, I'd have the fucking big belly and the big red nose and the varicose veins, and I wouldn't be getting laid. So I'm, I'm alive and I'm healthy. And my liver would be a mess. You know, I was a serious drunk. I was drinking a year. Hey, booze. So there's really a million, a million, million questions I, I would love to ask, uh, but uh, this one comes to mind for some reason, and it doesn't really have a lot to do with the book. How would you compare to living on the East Coast to the West Coast? I love it out here. The East Coast, especially New York, has become uh, the East Coast, especially New York, has become like uh, they've eliminated the middle class. You know, it's 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 you go in there, sure. it's, it's a nightmare. It's expensive. And you've got to make one hundred twenty thousand dollars a year in New York just to survive. I mean, you know, it's uh-huh. it costs twelve dollars across the bridge each way, and the traffic is is crazy. It's it's out here. I mean, I'm in Arizona, so it's wide open. There's never no traffic, and uh, 
the weather, of course, is amazing. Everything is cheap, so I'm retired, so why not here as opposed to there? Close enough to L.A. that I can get there when I have to. Uh, in New York, even if I was doing comedy, I'd have a hard time getting a lot of stage time because every comic, you come out of college and you think you're like, first thing you say to yourself, do I go to L.A. or do I go to New York? Nobody says, do I go to Phoenix? Do I go to Denver? Well, they right. got great comedy scenes there. They got great comedy scenes there. You're going to get better faster because you're going to get stage time. You want to get good at uh-huh. you got to do it. You write, you're a writer. You want to be a better writer, you got to write. You know, that's it. No other way to do it. It's the same thing with comedy. So the comedy scene here is really good for me. I, I got better fast, but I wouldn't have got like that in L.A. But I'm almost ready to make a move to L.A. But I was out there for about a year, and I didn't like the comedy scene. I didn't like the traffic. I didn't like the whole deal. But Arizona, I love Arizona. But again, I'm almost out growing Phoenix. It's almost time, but uh, not quite. Have yet. you so, had any encounters with Western Diamondbacks out there? Western Diamondbacks rattlesnake, you snake? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mean bites? Snakes? <laughs> yeah. Not bites. No, I don't well, see any know, snakes. No. No, no I, I don't. Well, see I, every time I drive in between, you know, Phoenix and LA, there's always a few snakes going across the road. Well, I mean, it's a dead man, I mean, but, you know, but I, 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 Scorpions, I've seen some of them out here, but, uh, uh-huh. let me tell you something. After being in Southeast Asia, they're nothing out here. The scorpions out here look like cigars. I mean, <laughs> the Scorpions in Southeast Asia look like shoeboxes. You know what I mean? I mean, they got, wow, the wow. buttons there are so big. You jump, get dressed on a cockroach in Southeast Asia, man. You want to kill it, you don't step on it. You jump on its back and go Anthony Perkins on it. You cycle it. They got some big bugs. Everything's big, so. It doesn't don't scare me, no. Well, let me uh, ask you this. Uh, I'm kind of curious. I've heard <laughs> a lot of reports back and forth uh, that it's either true or not true. You live in Arizona. Do you yeah. think the Democratic primaries were fixed out there? I think that there was definitely a voter restriction, no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, but that's happening all over the country. Uh-huh. They're closing as many, making as inconvenient as voters possible, especially for the poor, because they know they're going to vote Democratic. So, you know, yeah, I think it was, uh, I mean, Republicans. I mean, it's this whole manifestation of Trump is just, uh, what you're seeing is the whole destruction of the Republican Party. I'm delighted he got the, uh, the nomination. Delighted. I think they're going to win, they're going to lose Congress, they're going to lose the Senate. You know, and I don't want to get too much on the political rant, but Romney, when he ran against Obama and got beat by five million votes. Right. Romney got more white votes, more white votes than any candidate in American history. Wow. And lost by five million votes to Obama. Which is why the whole Republican Party said we have to be more inclusive. We gotta open up. So how did they do it? They put this guy in here. So this guy, Muslims ain't gonna vote for him, that's for sure. Mexicans ain't gonna vote for him, that's for sure. Women ain't gonna vote for him, that's for sure. So no matter how many angry white men get out there, they have absolutely no chance of winning. They're gonna lose Congress and uh, not Congress, they'll lose the Senate for sure. Possibly Congress, if it was a but I think it's going to be a bigger massive sweep than, uh, I could be wrong. I mean, anybody could be wrong. Then Johnson against Goldwater. I mean, I think they're going to take, uh, I mean, just the, the only people are going to vote Trump are the, the real red, red states. You know, it ain't going to happen. I mean, you, you, you can't be that divisive and make it the perfect thing. I mean, and then he's going to paint Hillary as a liar, but all politicians are a liar. And this guy is really pretty much a, uh, a chiseler. I mean, that's all he is. His idea of negotiation is I sign a contract with you, you do the job, and then when I get done, instead of paying you, I start criticizing the job, and we negotiate it down. And if you don't like or, it, then. Right, yeah. That's what he is. Yeah, it's a chiseler. What is it? The best quote of it all. 
is uh, the first line of the Godfather, Voltaire. Behind uh, behind every fortune, there's a crime. Now, do you think <laughs> this guy became a billionaire because he wasn't because he was on the was on the level? Then you got to be out of your mind. You got to believe in the truth there. You know, well, behind every fortune, I'm not sorry, not Voltaire. That's about behind every fortune is a crime. First line of the Godfather, by the way. What, what, what advice would you give to like the millennials who are out there? They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to live within the system, but you know the system probably screws. Well, the first thing they got to do is get politically involved. They got to make themselves a political uh -huh. force. You know what I mean? They got to get politically. I mean, you can't tear down the system. We all know the system's crooked from top to bottom. So you got to uh -huh. change the system. You got to demand change, and to do that, you can't sit in the attitude that hey, listen, it doesn't make any difference who I vote for. Well, you know what? It doesn't make. You're not going to change the world overnight, but it does make it. You've got to make your voice heard if the system doesn't work. And young people won't vote. And uh, it's a tragedy because young people flock to Bernie by, you know, the overwhelming masses. And what Bernie's saying is absolutely correct. I mean, what do you get for your taxes? All you get is uh, you don't get education. You don't, you don't get uh, health care. What do you get? You get? The only thing you get for your taxes is the right to drop bombs on, on people that don't deserve it in the Middle East. You know, <laughs> and, 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 what the fuck are we doing? So, uh, yeah, Bernie's dead right. I mean, and, you know, there's something wrong with a system when, when, come on, man, you know, bribery is a tax write-off. Lobbying is a tax write-off. How is that possible? How does Congress get away with that, making lobbying a tax write-off? Right? I mean, it's, we got to fix the system. It's, it's about money. It's all money. You should go on so the Bill Maher show. One of these days, <laughs> one of these days, I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah, the system's a mess. It's to destroy. You know, congressmen are bought. So I tell you the truth, in my day in the 50s, 60s, congressmen, they had lobbyists. And the lobbyists were blowing the congressmen for access. Now, mm -hmm. the congressmen are blowing the lobbyists. It's the other way around. The lobbyists are the money. The congressmen can't suck their cocks quick enough. It's all about money. <laughs> We don't have elections in this country. We have auctions. You know, that's what we have. We have auctions, not elections. Whoever spends the most amount of money wins. It's awful. When you need $2 million to run for Congress, what the fuck? What's going on? It's not a, we don't have a republic, like exactly like uh, Bernie says. You know, we have an oligarchy. And uh, it's a big club and we ain't in it. So, I mean, until people smarten up and get to the polls and start changing, that's what I would tell young people. Another thing is, yeah, demand free education. We're the only industrialized country in the world doesn't have it, and it's for a reason. They don't want you educated. I got to tell you, I, I, and, and I loved UF, my experience in UF, and I met a lot of really brilliant people and uh, a lot of brilliant kids. And I was also appalled at the general lack of historical knowledge. I was sitting in a history class in UF, and UF is a damn good school. And, right. uh, I mean, there were 60 people in the class, and 30 of them didn't know which side Germany fought on in World War II. I was like shaking my head. I couldn't believe it. I talked to Mike Foley in the journalism department. I told him that story. So let me tell you something. So I was talking to 150 students the other day, and 110 of them never heard of George Harris. That's incredible for me. That's sad. You know? It's fucking sad. You bet your ass. But that's exactly how the powers that be want it. You know? Keep them dumb. Don't let them know how screwed they're getting. You know? Don't educate your enemy. <laughs> you're robbing from somebody don't tell me you took his, you, you picked his pocket <laughs> when, when you were in um, the fire department in in New York could you go back to um, 
911 a little bit. What were you doing at the time? Were you a lieutenant? I was, after 9-11, yeah, I was a lieutenant. And I just retired. I'll tell you a quick story. I worked at 9-11. I was a first responder, but I didn't get up there until three days after the collapse. If I, this is a, true, a story that's kind of interesting in my life. Anyway, I was studying okay. as a captain. I was a lieutenant. And the uh, captain's test was five years away. And it's an enormous amount of material. It's a highly competitive test because it's a $12,000 a year raise. But it's not a $12,000 a year raise. It's a $12,000 a year raise for the rest of your life. You know what I mean? So it's a huge competitive test. I studied oh, for five years. Sure. Make a long story short with three other guys. Four of us were in a study group. Of course, of course, we got to the test. The more we stepped up to study. Uh, just like running a marathon. So I took the test. They passed. I failed. I was the only guy that failed. I was devastated. I said, you know what? Fuck this. I got 22 years on. I'm not going to wait five more years to take the cabin step. I'm getting out. I retired. Uh-huh. Went down to Key West. When 9-11 hit about three months later, all four of those guys I was studying with, the other three guys were inside the building. All three of them are dead. No doubt in my mind that I had passed that test. I would have been inside that building as a captain in Manhattan. So the moral of that story is some days you think you have a good day bad day you really have a good day because you have no idea really what life is going to throw you but uh i was there for cleanup and uh for about three or four days of course when my brothers went down i lost 45 guys that day drove up there and uh went to work on the dig and uh yeah it was even after vietnam that was a that was a something that'll haunt my dreams forever i mean the smell alone the smell was incredible walking around the road and the, and the fact that nothing 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 was recognizable. Nothing was pulverized. Everything. I mean, you just, you, you might find a wheel or a chair or something like that, but, uh, an arm every now and then, you know, something. But it was, uh, and the smell, like I said, the smell was, I mean, I smell, I smell what we call roast. It's a euphemism for a burnt body in a fire. We call them a roast. And, uh, I smelled that. Now, let me tell you something. Once you smell burnt flesh, it's tough to believe the man is the highest order of things. Because it's awful and it stays in your fucking system forever. But at 9 11, the smell was even worse. It smelled like raw chicken that had spoiled. You know, because all these dead bodies were decomposing underneath the mass. It's a mass funeral pyre, that's what it was. Uh, you know, we lost 343 guys alone. Fire department. So it was, uh, it was, it was you know, it was awful. It was fucking awful. In Vietnam was awful. But, you know, it is what it is. There's good and there's bad in every life. You live it. When you say that each event for you, Vietnam and 911, changed your life in a significant way? Well, nothing changed my life like Vietnam. Well, first of all, I was 19 years old. And okay. you take a kid 19 years old out of the Bronx who's never even been in a fucking airplane before, and you ship them uh, 12,000 miles to the other side of the world, talk about culture shock, and then you put them in combat. Uh, yeah, that changed my life for the rest of my life. I mean, Vietnam not only changed my life, it modeled my life. Uh, it was uh, something I'll never forget. I mean, you know, it'll be with forever, you know. And again, the way they treated those guys when they came back, you know, there's fucking, what, 30% of the homeless are Vietnam veterans. Once they're done with you, they're done with you. They don't give a shit. It's always the kids, man. You know why they send kids to the war? They send kids to the war because they have so much time ahead of them. Time is not a premium to them yet, you know what I mean? Because the less you have anything, the more, the more valuable it becomes, just like money. Now at 68, I'm starting to realize how valuable time is. So sure. time is at a premium, you know, and the less you have of it, the more valuable it becomes. When you're 19 years old, you're, in the short, you're looking out at the world like you've got another 80 years to live. 
Well, there ain't right. no guarantees, my man. No guarantees. So, uh, you know, they send me young to war. You think, you think somebody my age, 68 years old, you put me in a foxhole and say, charge? And I'm going to look at you and say, how about you, Judge? What am I charging for? Are you crazy? This guy's got a machine gun. How about you, Judge? But you can tell a 19-year-old kid to charge. He thinks he's indestructible. He's going to go. You know? You ain't got to intimidate a 60-year-old man, 68-year-old man. They know the game. They know that the game is rigged. The dice are fixed. You know? That's it. When do you think the last righteous war the United States actually fought was? World War Two, World War Two, but we were responsible for that in a way as well. If you look back at uh-huh. uh, World War One, the, the bankers found out there's an awful lot of money to be made in war. You know, we went into World War One. I, I think the banks owed about three hundred million dollars to Europe, and after World War One, Europe owed us three billion dollars, and three billion dollars in 1947 was three billion dollars. It was real money. <laughs> they realized it was. Just, I mean, not may well just be after World War One. So we're talking three billion dollars in 19. 20, 1919, that was real money. So if the industrials found out that there was a lot of money in war, you look at, look at Germany being rebuilt. I always marvel at this. I read in history books that the industrials rebuilt Germany, and they did it within 10 years, you know, after World War I, under Hitler. Well, the German industrials were all broke and bombed out. Who were the industrials that rebuilt Germany? What do you think of us? American industrials. Money. Not just Prescott Bush with the banks, but I mean, Coca-Cola did business, IBM gave them filing cards to fucking take care of the Jews that they were burning. Uh, AT&T was over there. Uh, Coca-Cola was over there operating under the name Fanta Orange. I mean, business goes out as usual. And business only gets better in war. So even though we were, if you look back, you know, I mean, but it was a noble war and that somebody had to stop Hitler and it was a genius of Roosevelt to keep us out of the war long enough to use Russian blood to do it. But, uh, because uh, America at the time was totally isolationist. You know, between the Let Lease Act and uh, uh, and then, of course, the ingenious bombing of Pearl Harbor that we knew about. Uh, and it's obvious because there was no carriers and <laughs> all the carriers, our five carriers were sent out to sea, so we knew the attack was coming uh, to get us into the war. You know, Hitler was furious when Japan declared war, when we declared war on Japan. He was furious. Mm-hmm. You know, because he had to declare a war on us. We didn't declare war on Germany. Germany declared war on us. Because they had the pact with Japan. And once we declared war on Japan, they had to declare war on us. But Hitler was furious. Because he wanted American war. He wanted the industrial strength of America. Because we were the oil economy. We were booming. You know? And uh, so, that's my take on, on, on World War Two. I don't know so now, I asked when the last righteous war it was. Yes. So now that we have, now that we have the the military industrial complex, I don't know what it is. Our military is stronger than like the ten or twenty That's next right. ones under right. us combined or something. That's uh, right. Do you do you do you think that that military industrial complex is just simply to enforce the business interests of these? These shadow that, and, that and it's capitalism run amok. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the generals have a sweet deal. I mean, they beg for more weapons. They tell us how bad they are. And then when they get, when they get done retire, they go on and sit on the board of directors for Boeing and, uh, some other defense factory, Halliburton or whatever. It's a round robin, just like anything else. It stinks of corruption. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, I mean, Halliburton, Jesus, God, the Iraq war, anybody who thinks we went to Iraq because we thought he had the best destruction really needs to see a psychiatrist. I mean, it was about him backdooring oil. The problem with the Middle East is, and this is, even if we don't need their oil, our dollar is based on the petrol dollar, not based on gold anymore. Right. So we can't have China buying oil or Iraq selling oil to China for anything other than the American dollar because if it does happen, well, the dollar might collapse, which is why this big turmoil about Iran. It's all linked to the dollar. But it's, that's, you know, I'm not a conspiracist, but uh, it's all about money. Anybody who thinks the war is about anything other than money or territory, it's sadly mistakes. It's only about not to spread democracy, that's for sure. You know? Yeah. You can't I, spread I, democracy when you're blowing people up. Sure. You know? I mean, ISIS is a, is a reality, but come on. ISIS uh, wasn't even around when, when, when George Bush was in office. Bush and Cheney created ISIS. They were the mother and father. Uh, they were surrogates. Who, who, who the hell created ISIS? Where'd they come from? Which one was the father and which one was the mother? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Cheney worked close with Halliburton, but you know. So yeah, I, you said you're not a conspiracy theorist. I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist either. At the same time, I'm not so stupid to think that a number of people with the same interests can't get together and you know, talk over strategy. Uh, so what do you think about something like, you know, a lot of people say, for instance, that 911 was... was Well, I can put that to rest. Let me, let me put uh -huh. that to rest. It's very simple. You don't have to know anything about physics. You don't have to be a firefighter. Just common sense. It's the Bush administration manufactured 9-11 so we could go to war with Iraq. Uh -huh. Why wouldn't they just make the terrorists on the plane Iraqis instead of sort? This way everybody would say, let's go get those bastards. They weren't. They were sorted. Uh, right. So that blows the conspiracy theory out the window, if you ask me. Uh, the only thing I can oh. understand is Building 7. Uh, building 7 will always be a mystery to me. I don't know how that got lit. How it was just pure. Somebody looking for Jewish lightning and taking advantage of the situation. But there's no reason Building 7 should have collapsed. Uh, so I don't know, but I, I, no, I don't think it was a conspiracy. Uh, I'm familiar with different kinds of collapse, being a lieutenant on a job, and uh, that was a pancake collapse with, uh, with something unprecedented, with uh, jet fuel used at high altitudes, which were very windy, and the structures just didn't support it, and uh, it was a pancake collapse. So, uh, And thank God it was a pancake collapse. If it collapsed outwards, imagine how many people would have killed. Oh, yeah, certainly. So they no. take advantage, but they did take advantage of the situation. They took full advantage. People always take advantage of tragedy, don't they? Right. That's our nature. Money, again. Greed, money. You haven't heard the political term that uh, tragedy is an opportunity? Right? No, but that's, that's but very most, true. Most politicians, you know, if something's tragic, it's an opportunity. Now, uh, comedians, like witty, smart comedians, they're very good at observing things, I find. Uh, yep. Some people will put will include that in their act, and some people don't. To what extent do you include, you know, these type of observations into your act, and why or why not? Well, I don't, I don't do a lot of political stuff, 
perform on stage. Uh, I, I got a, a small couple of bits I do if I feel like it. If I read the crowd first. One of the reasons I don't is because, quite frankly, and I don't want to be insulting, but the, the audience is not usually intelligent enough to pick up the, the comedy club. Uh, you got to spell out every joke for them. And the second uh-huh. reason is I really haven't found my voice yet. Well, the same person on stage that I am talking to you right now. I'm not that same person yet. I found my voice in writing. I haven't found it yet on stage. I'm close. I'm getting better all the time. So <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm being more myself on stage. Uh, but I do mostly stories about sex because they're funny and I know about it and alcoholism because they're funny and I know about them and gambling. Uh, so that much I do, but not, I don't get too politically or too serious, you know, because it is a comedy show after all. Not everything has to be uplifting or, uh, what do you call it when you, you know, you, you, you don't have to, you don't have to educate everybody or have the arrogance to think you should, you know? Make them laugh. Sure. That's what they're there for, right? Sure. So I try and make them laugh. So that's, that's why I don't. And uh, in, in terms of when you were a bookie, now you were you were yeah you weren't in Vegas or anything you had you you had your own. It, it must operation. have been really difficult. Yeah, your own operation. It must have been really difficult to balance things in such a way that you didn't go under. Because if somebody's betting one, if a lot of people are betting one way and they win, you could lose a lot of money. Is that correct? Well, it is to an extent, but that's not how it works. This is how bookmaking works. Uh-huh. Let's say on football, let's say on average Sunday, right? Let's say there's 16 games, right? So there's 16 games on Sunday. Well, of those 16 games, five will be important to a bookmaker. Five games. They'll be sure. like the, the regional play up there. The Giants are playing Dallas. Well, that'll be a big game for a New York bookmaker. Of course, Monday night football is huge. Sunday night football is huge. Uh, and whoever particular team looks like it's an overlay. So you might have five games that are crucial. The rest of the games are scattered. But those five games, you'll have your situation you talked about. We might have $30,000 more on each side. So you're looking at $150,000 spread out over five games that, that are all one-sided. They're lopsided games. Okay. Well, you can try and limit that by raising the line and get money on the other side, which is what we do. But here's how bookmaking really works. Because of the vigorous, the 10%, all a bookmaker has to do is win two out of those five, those five crucial games. Win two out of them, and he breaks even. Okay. If he wins three out of them, he makes a lot of money, because not only does he win the games, he the juice. The juice is the deal. Uh-huh. If he wins four out of them, he crushes. So the bookmaker has to lose, right? He has to lose four out of five games before he loses money. How often do you think that happens this season? Maybe twice? Yeah, once or twice. Yeah, that's it. So there's no way he's going to lose over the course of the season. So no, we don't lay off money. We eat it. Because all our players are going to go broke eventually. Why give that money to another bookmaker? The problem becomes if you start betting yourself and get busy. Exactly. Well, that's the component. Uh-huh. That's part of it. You know, when you're not getting enough action at $30,000 a game, you need more. Then you know you got a serious problem, you know? It's like when I was doing cocaine. When I went down my seven-year route with cocaine, I knew I had a coke problem. I didn't need AA to tell me I had a coke problem. I didn't need the uh, Narcotics Anonymous to tell me I had a coke problem. I called the hooker, and I had the hooker was ready for me, and she was in lingerie, ready to go. And I was snorting coke, and I said, you know what? If I do two more lines of this thing, I'm not going to be able to screw. And I did the lines anyway. And I said, well, you know what? This is getting to be a real problem. <laughs> <laughs> Because if you had a new coat and screw, you got a problem. So uh, that's when I knew my coat days were coming to an end. 
So are you going to be coming to the East Coast anytime soon? Are you, yes, I'll be in Florida. Uh, I don't know when again. I was there. I, I lectured at the University of Florida. That was a big kick for me. I got really good testimonials. Yeah, I, I wasn't. I'm, I was, I'm, I'm going to be in the Northeast. That's what I'm wondering about. Uh, where are you going to be? So, oh, I'll be around huh? New York area until probably middle oh, of yeah. September. I'll, well, I'll be in July. In New York. I'm going to do yeah. a comedy show with New York in the Bronx in July. July 18th. Oh, oh, really? I'd love to go. Yeah, I'd love to have you. I'd love to see you again. Uh, well, no, well, well. I, I, and I, and I, what I do is I rent a big bar in Yonkers, on the Yonkers Bronx line, and I put 150 people in there and I just have a ball. You know, I'll do an hour, an hour and a half or something, and bring another comic in with me to open. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be cheap. It'll be nothing. See you on the arm. Just show up. It's good to see you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be in New York in July. I'm also doing a, a gig for Holly Davidson Owners Group up in, uh, Alexandria, New York. So they're flying me in. They put me up in a castle, which is cool for a couple of days. And, uh, <laughs> I'm driving down after that. I'm in front of 650 people, so I should sell a lot of books, which is good. Ollie Davidson is in my wheelhouse age-wise, you know. And, uh, uh-huh. and then I'm going to do a comedy show in the Bronx, and I might do a couple of gates in Manhattan while I'm in. But I'll be here for about a week and a half. I'm bringing this chick in with me. So she wants to see New York, so I'll do the right thing and show her around. But, yeah, I'd love to see you, man. I'll be in July 18th. So now I'm going to be doing Florida as well, but... Uh, uh, I got a good base in Florida. I think I could draw some people. So, but I hate to give it to the comedy clubs because it's another corporate ripoff. I'd rather do my own room and sold up with people and not rip anybody off. You know, but crazy admission fees and two treat minimum and all that bullshit. You know. I hear you. Uh, one more thing: when I interviewed you five years ago for Inside Magazine, whenever it was, you mentioned uh-huh. that and there was a great article you wrote. By the way, it was a great article. I oh, thank you. Article. I mean, it was, it was easy to write that with you, but... Uh, <laughs> um, I still got that article. I still have it. Thank you. Awesome. So, yeah, I make um, Rodney Dangerfield, yeah. Yeah, you mentioned Rodney Dangerfield, so I thought, I thought maybe you could talk about your influences and... and, and well, Colin, and your... of course. I met, I, met, I met Colin, and Colin grew up... Uh, we claim him in the Bronx because he went to Cardinal Hayes, which was my sister school. I went to Mount St. Michael High School, but okay. he only went there for a couple of weeks, Colin. So Colin was my major in politics, still but Dangerfield, I love Rodney because, I mean, he only grew up two miles from me as well. And uh, uh, so him, Richard Pryor, of course, uh, Lady Bruce. Uh-huh. Uh, and now today I really admire Chris Rock a lot. I think he's great. Uh, he's great, I love yeah. Bill Burr. I think I love Bill Burr. I think Bill Burr is genius. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of them I don't care for that much, and I don't spend a lot of time watching it because I'm too busy writing it and rehearsing it. Uh, sure. I threw out my television set about 10 years ago. I don't own TV, and uh, it was the best move I ever made. The reason I threw it out is because time was starting to become a premium, and I realized you waste a lot of time. You're staring into a television set. I'd rather spend the reading, the writing. So uh, I don't watch a lot of comedy. I just do a lot of comedy, and I write a lot of comedy, because comedy is writing. It's just like anything else. You know, I, I, I find things that are funny, and I run them down, you know? And edit them, edit them, editing, right? It's, never, it's always not about the writing, it's always about the editing, right, God? It's about the editing. Well, that's, what it, sh- the that's what it should be. <laughs> that's right, it's about the rewriting. It's not about the writing. Which you mentioned, I'll show you the sorry state of American journalism. I read a, uh, a headline in, uh, in a newspaper. It wasn't the front page headline, it was a headline. And it said, homicide victims rarely talk to the police. <laughs> he said, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, man, oh, I saw that. <laughs> I saw that. That was great. <laughs> Imagine homicide victims rarely talk to police. I think this is insightful people reporting. <laughs> and, and nobody caught that. 
Unbelievable. How could that happen? I mean, nobody, nobody wants to buy a newspaper now. Jeez. Well, I, I went into the hotel today and I saw USA Today and I said, they still make newspapers? I guess yep. they still do. Yep. Well, that's my it, my brother. Anything else I can help you with? Anything else I can talk to you about? Uh, we'll be honest. Well, I can talk forever, but... Yeah, yeah, we did good. We did good. Feel free to call me anytime you want, man. It's always good to talk to you. It's like just having a conversation with somebody I like. And uh, for your listeners out there, uh, I think you really like the book. It's Confessions of a Bronx Bookie. I mean, what's not to like? It's about sex, drugs, gambling, and the mob. Everything that made this country great. So, uh, and you can you can get it at BronxBilly.com, correct? BronxBilly.com, or you can get it on Amazon and Kindle. Just go to Amazon and read the reviews. If you want an autographed copy, go to BronxBilly.com. I'll get you one out right away. And I don't think you're going to be disappointed with the read. It's a, it's a fast read. It's a good read. I'm proud of it. And, uh, Thank you for taking a chance on the new book. And the new book is going to be called The Mick. It's about Mick Mullen, uh, an Irish firefighter who's drunk and out of his mind. And uh, it's a love story, and it's uh, an end of 9-11. But it's a funny story as well, because it shows you about the madness that goes on in the busy firehouse, behind the scenes, how screwy these guys were, you know, the kind of men they are. And uh, hopefully uh, I'll, do, I'll do them just. Fantastic. It's great to hear from you again, Billy. Always good to hear from you too, man. Call me anytime. And thanks again for, for, for the plug. I appreciate it. And for that one right. call me wrote five years ago. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thank you. Keep up the great work. Hope to see you in July. Take care. You too. Bye.